Y'all remember the, con- the uh, company Enron, don't you? At its peak, that company was worth $70 billion. It had its roots in uh, a lot of public utilities. Uh, at one point, when Enron started to have some financial problems, uh, the company had started a number of uh, partnerships. They were really subsidiaries of Enron itself. And instead of its leaders allowing themselves to be held accountable for the uh, debts that they were racking up and the losses that they were accumulating, they hid the debts, they hid the losses in these subsidiary companies. Arthur Anderson was a, supposed to be an independent auditing firm, but it was found to be essentially complicit in perpetrating one of the biggest frauds in corporate history because it did not report what was actually going on. As a result, because of uh, the leaders of Enron uh, being uh, so uh, wrong in their actions and not being held accountable, thousands of people lost their jobs. Thousands of others who were investors in Enron lost billions of dollars. And when you and I make an investment in something, we expect to get a return on that investment, don't we? And it doesn't always work out. You know, you can play the stock market or you can make some kind of business investment in someone that you believe in and things don't work out all the time. Sometimes businesses fail. Sometimes the market goes down instead of up. Um, But as a general rule, you make an investment and you expect some kind of return on that investment. What about God? And I'm not talking about an investment you make in God, because that's not the right way to look at God. But I'm talking about the the investment that God has made in you. Don't you believe that God has the right to expect that investment in you to come back? You see, I believe that God has made an investment in each one of us. And we must be prepared to return to God what he is due. Take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 11 in verse 27. In Mark chapter 11, we're going to look at three stories today, and this is one of Mark's famous sandwich techniques where he takes two stories that are very similar, and he uh, puts them on either end of some other story that seems to not really fit, but when you look at them all together, it teaches us some very valuable lessons. And really one overarching lesson. And the lesson is that God has made an investment in us and we must be prepared to give God his due. We must be prepared to give God his payment. You see, God, number one, should receive our utmost respect. He should always receive respect from us. Have you ever been upset with God? I mean, honestly, you've been upset with God. You probably have, if you've lived long enough, if you've known God long enough. There's probably been a point in your life where uh, things didn't turn out your way. Uh, Sometimes suffering people get very upset with God. People that have gone through great tragedy and uh, great difficulties, they look at God and say, God, why didn't you prevent this? And so they get upset with God. Sometimes we get upset with God about little things. You know, some little thing doesn't go our way. But every single time that we get upset with God... It has a common source. We don't get what we want. If we don't get what we want, if things don't turn out our way, there's that temptation 
to look at God and be upset with Him. The religious leaders in Jesus' day and the stories that we're going to look at, they were upset with Jesus. Why? Because they didn't get what they wanted. You see, previously, the day before, Jesus had gone into the temple and He had exposed their um, financial obligations that they believed that they had. He, he exposed them to uh, have turned the temple from a house of prayer into a den of thieves. And he did it in a quite uh, powerful fashion. He went in and he took the money changers' tables, tables which, by the way, should not have been in the temple area. He took that common furniture and he overturned it. He took the chairs that the pigeon sellers were sitting in and he tossed them aside. And so he was, as the Lord, he was symbolically clearing out his temple. He was showing them that judgment is going to come upon them because of what they have turned God's house into and really what they were turning God's people into. God's people were looking at the gathering together of themselves as, as a way to make a buck, as a way to sort of get ahead instead of a way to honor God. And so Jesus called them on it. He called them on it publicly. And his, the, the wrath that Jesus poured out in cleansing out the temple was really focused on the leaders of the temple because they were leading the people astray. And so the leaders were upset with Jesus. And essentially, they did not respect Jesus. In verse 27 of Mark chapter 11, we read, They came again to Jerusalem. And, he, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? What things? Cleansing out the temple. Who gave you the right to come in here and to tell us our business? We run this temple, not you, Jesus, was their attitude. Jesus said to them in verse 29, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now you probably know the story about John the Baptist. He was the forerunner of Jesus. He was the one who came to prepare God's people, Israel, to receive the Lord. He came preaching repentance Get ready, the Lord is coming. And many of the people responded to that call. And they repented of their sins. And they were baptized by John. But many of the religious leaders didn't care for it. Because it didn't fit their MO. And so, Jesus asked them this question. John the Baptist, when he was alive, was his baptism, was his ministry ordained by God? Or just something on his own. By whose authority did he do these things? Answer me. Verse 31. They discussed it with one another saying, if, if we say he did this from heaven, he will say, well, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, and Mark tells us they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. They refused to answer the question. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. These religious leaders 
They were upset that Jesus had called them out on their profiteering in God's holy temple. And so they saw themselves as being above Jesus. They saw themselves as being people that could question God. By whose authority do you do these things? You see, they, they thought their social standing, their religious standing, put them above Jesus. You know, and that's, a, that's an issue that we need to be careful of, too. That because we have some type of social standing in society or because we're maybe a leader in the church, that somehow we're always right. Somehow we call the shots. And it's not that way. They thought that they could put themselves above Jesus. And so Jesus made it perfectly clear that whatever you decide about John the Baptist, that's what you're going to decide about me. And so they wouldn't answer the question. You see, God should always receive our utmost respect. We must never lose sight of the fact that no matter how famous we are, no matter how rich we are, no matter how well standing uh, we look in other people's eyes, we are to be subservient to God. We are the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. We are the slaves. He is God. We are His followers. We must never lose that high view of God. Secondly, God should receive the proceeds of what He's invested in us. Jesus told a parable in chapter 12. It says He began to speak to them in parables. And here it is. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, the owner sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him. And threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants. And give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Here's the situation. For 300 years, before Jesus told this parable, there had been a situation of absentee landlords. Landlords who would hold property and then go off to another town, go off to another country. Now, in ancient Jewish law, possession was nine-tenths of the law. And if a landlord was absent for too long without ever trying to make an attempt to own the property or to receive the fruit from the property, then the tenants who were there could sort of become like, every once in a while you hear about modern-day squatters. 
who will get into a, a rental property and, and somehow claim it as their own. Well, that was actually ancient Jewish law, that if the landlord was not active in trying to uh, receive back some of the fruit of his property, then the tenants could claim to be the true owners. And the townspeople, the judges, could actually rule in their favor and they could gain possession of the land. So that's the ancient Jewish law. And so here you have, in this parable, the owner making a large investment. What does he do? He has a vineyard. He puts up a big fence. He builds a wine press down in the ground. He builds a tower. And so he's put a lot of money into this vineyard. And then he wants to get back some of the fruit of his vineyard. He owns it. He's just renting it out. He's leasing it out. And so what happens? There's this crescendo of violence. He sends the first servant along to them. And they beat that servant and send them back. They're probably upset because they know that every time the owner tries to make an attempt on the land, or to claim the land as his own, that it is delaying their potential right to claim the land as theirs. And so the owner sends servant number two. They treat him even worse. They take him and they hit this guy in the head. And then they treat him shamefully. That means they insulted him. They literally added injury or insult to his injury so he sends servant number three and beyond some of them were beaten some were even killed finally the owner says i've got one more option i'm going to send to them my son they'll treat my son right in fact jesus calls him the beloved son that means he's the one and only son this is the heir to the property. The son was killed. Not only killed, but he wasn't given a decent burial. They took his dead body and they tossed it over the wall for the birds to eat. A sign of incredible disrespect. What will the owner do? The owner is going to have his justice. Verse 9 again says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. What's Jesus saying in this parable? Very simple to understand. He's saying that the leaders of God's people in his day, they have rejected the prophets of old, some of which they beat, some they even killed. And when God finally sent his beloved son, his one and only son, the heir of all the world. What did they do with him? They beat him too. And they killed him too. What they didn't realize is that it was through the death of the Son of God that you and I, who are not even part of God's people, we're Gentiles, we gain eternal life we become part of god's family we are heirs with christ verses 10 and 11 jesus said have you not read the scripture the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone it's a talk it's jesus talking about himself jesus is the fulfillment of this passage of scripture he is the stone that the builders rejected and yet God has said, it doesn't matter what the people say. 
This is the chief cornerstone by which I will build my temple. Not a temple made of of hands, but a temple of God where the presence of God will dwell. He's talking about you and me. This was the Lord's doing, verse 11 says, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus makes it very clear that the people of that day, the leaders of the people of that day, were given a sacred trust. They were to receive from God what God had instructed. And yet every time God sent them a prophet, they would reject that prophet, they would beat that prophet, they would kill some of the prophets, and they even killed the Son of God. What's the application for you and me? God has invested something in you too. He has invested so much in you. And I believe that God expects a return on that investment. What is it that God has put into your life that God should receive an investment back? Has He given you talent that you're not using for God? Has He given you financial wealth that you're hoarding for yourself? Has He given you children? You know, even your your children, your grandchildren, they're to be given back over to God. That should be one of the very first things you do. Set in your heart this simple fact. God, my kids are yours. Do with their life what you will. I yield them to you. Help me to raise them right. If you've got grandkids, help me to be the best granddad, the best grandmother that I've got, that I can be. Help me, Lord, to do everything that I can to direct them to you. You see, every part of your life, everything that you have, everything that God has given you, you should be giving it back to God on a daily basis. That's what Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 mean. That we are living sacrifices. This is our act of worship. That we are living sacrifices. That here I am, God, everything that I am today, I give it to you. Every part of my physical body, everything that I say with my mouth, everything that I watch with my eyes, everything that I listen to with my ears, I give it to you, God. I want to glorify you in all things. God, this is my living sacrifice to you. I hope that it's acceptable. Because I give myself to you. That should be your heart's cry every day. That's what worship really is. And so God should receive back the proceeds of what he's invested in you. Third, God should receive the glory that his image requires. It says in verse 12, they were seeking to arrest Jesus and they feared the people. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. They were right. So they left him and they went away. Verse 13. And they sent some to him, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, here comes the flattery. We know that you are true. They didn't really believe that. We know you do not care about anyone's opinion. We know you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. That's the amazing thing. These guys are right. Jesus did tell the truth. He did teach the way of God, but they didn't believe it. They were just trying to flatter him. They were getting ready to try to catch him, trap him in his words. 
And so here's the question. After they buttered them up, they said, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? It's one or the other, Jesus. Yes or no. Now, the taxes that they're referring to is a poll tax. It was instituted in AD 6 as a tribute to Caesar. And so you can imagine, here's the Roman government run by Caesar, possessing this land. They are the oppressors of the Jewish people in their holy land, land that was given to them by God, and now they have to pay this tax. Now they have to pay this tribute to Caesar. And so there were a wide range of emotions about it. There were some Jewish supporters of it who were called Herodians. They sort of kissed up to Herod, and uh, they supported the tax. You know, they were just playing the political game, whatever it takes to get by, right? And so they, they uh, supported the text. The Pharisees, they were a very strict religious group. They resisted the tax, but sometimes they would pay it. And then you had the Zealots. Uh, you know, they were the Tea Party of old. They were, we're not paying that tax. And so they were just absolutely against it, and they refused to pay it. And so uh, Jewish opinion ran all, the whole gamut in that day. Jesus, do you pay the tax or do you not pay the tax? If Jesus said, yes, pay the tax, then what, what could happen? The Jewish people could see Jesus as a traitor. You're telling us to submit to these oppressors. If Jesus said no, then they could go back to the Roman government and say, this man is guilty of sedition. This man is guilty of treason. He needs to be put to death. It was a trap question. Verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now, here's something that a lot of us miss. Jesus didn't have any money on him. He didn't even have a denarius. Denarius worth about 15 cents. He didn't have any coins on him. And, uh, and so right then his answer should show the crowd, Hey, this guy's not collaborating with the Romans. He, he doesn't even have a Roman coin on him. Uh, but apparently his questioners had one, which really exposes their hypocrisy. Uh, you know, they're saying, should we pay the Roman tax? And he says, I don't even have a Roman coin. You guys do. Give me one. And so what happens in verse 16? And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Now, I've got a picture of a denarius, this Roman coin. This is the actual kind of coin. Uh, that Jesus held in his hand. And on the, on the one side, you've got the heads, and on the other side, you have someone sitting on a throne. And uh, on side one, in Latin, it says, Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus. Catch that? The coin itself claimed that Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, was divine. He was the son of of the divine Augustus. That makes Tiberius Caesar the son of God. That's what the coin was claiming. On the other side, it says, Ponte Maxim, high priest. High priest. Tiberius Caesar, not only is the ruler of the government, not only is he divine because he comes from the divine Augustus, but he's the high priest. He is the highest religious leader in all of the Roman Empire, in all the world. 
this man is the greatest religious leader of all time. It sounded like he could probably run for office in Washington, right? This guy was pretty good at propping, propping himself up. They bring Jesus this coin. And Jesus said, whose likeness and inscription is this? The likeness is the likeness of Tiberius Caesar. The inscription is obviously the same. Tiberius Caesar. They said to him, Caesar's. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Two lessons here from what Jesus said in verse 17. Number one, it's the lesson that you hear most often when you hear this verse. Pay your taxes. Okay? You owe something? Pay the government. I know they waste a lot, and they're not worthy of it. Pay them anyway. It's theirs. Number two, this is the more important lesson. It's the lesson that you don't hear as often. Give to God what is His. Give to God what is His. Let me rephrase the question that Jesus asked. Instead of asking, whose image and inscription is on the coin? Let me ask you this. Where's God's image? It's on you. It's on me. The image of God is what we are made in. We are made in the image of God. What's the lesson? Give to God what has his image. Give to God everything that you are. Give to God your heart. Give to God your body. Give to God everything that you are. What about the inscription? What is inscribed in every person's heart? Believe it or not, the Word of God is inscribed in every person's spiritual heart. I want you to listen to Romans chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Here's what we read. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears, their witness, bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What's Paul saying in Romans chapter 2? He's saying that every person on the earth has the word of God inscribed on their hearts. What does that mean? That means that we have no excuse. We know in our hearts that there is a God. We know in our hearts that He is holy. We know in our hearts that He is the Creator. We know that He is due our respect. We know that we'll be held accountable. We know in our hearts it is already known in the deepest, darkest tribe of Africa. It is known in the most uh, glorious city on the face of the earth, in every single person's heart. We know that there is a God, and we know that we should fear Him. We know that we should respect Him, that we should honor Him. We know these things. It's written on our hearts. It comes as no surprise. Why do you think that so many lost people today 
get so bent out of shape when you talk about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ because it points to one conclusion, that we are sinners, that I'm a sinner, and that I must make payment for my sin. And that's the hard reality, the spiritual reality of life, that I must make payment for my sin unless there's a substitute who made a payment for me. And you and I know the good news of the gospel. We know that there's someone who is that substitute. We know that someone did pay the penalty, the penalty of death for our sins. And we know that he died on a cross. And we know that he rose from the grave to give us life. And that person is none other than the very Son of God. That's why Jesus came. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Let me ask you today, what would it look like if you gave to God what He is due? What changes would it make in your life today? Would it affect your pocketbook? Would it affect the way you raise your kids? Would it affect the way you act at home? If this day you said, God, everything I have, 100%, is yours. Do with it as you will. That's what discipleship requires. Let's pray together. Father, sometimes we just struggle along through life and we, we try to sort of uh, survive. We try to, try to just make it through the day. We have good days and bad days, but Father, uh, the, real, the real sin, the real crime against you is if we never take time in our day to reflect upon our relationship with you and how much you've done for us, so many blessings you poured out into our lives, so many resources you've given us. Even the very air that we breathe, Father, is a gift from you. And so, Father, it, it just behooves us to say thank you. Our response should be one of devotion. Our response should be one of saying to you, Yes, Father, my life is to do with as you will. I'll go anywhere you want me to go. I'll do anything you want me to do. Whatever it is, Father, the answer is yes. I respond to you. 